Keith said to me, he says, you know, Michael, he says, I got this film I want to do. He says, about Chuck Berry. I said, yeah. He says, there's not a lot of money in it. He said, but it's my payback to Chuck Berry for all the money the Stones made off of Chuck Berry's music. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Hey everybody, Brian Lally here. I'm a Hollywood native and you're about to watch another episode of Brian Lally, Hollywood native. I'm sitting here with my man, Scott Williams, my partner in crime. Scott, who do we have on the show today? Today, Brian, we have a great guest, Michael Frondelli. Michael Frondelli. You guys are not going to be disappointed with the life this guy has. From an Italian family in Queens, his father migrated to the United States, and musician at a young age, recording engineer at a little bit older, worked with some of the greats. Who's the one who put that Billy Idol Rebel Yell album together? Well, it's him. Who put the Frank Sinatra duets together? He might have been the man behind that. Who worked with Chuck Berry and Keith Richards on the Hail Hail Rock and Roll? That was Michael, too. And Keith went to work with him at Electric Lady Studios and asked him to walk him home every day after work. How fucking cool is that? Walking Keith Richards through New York City at 5 in the morning. It don't get any cooler than that. All those stories from the man himself. Oh, 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 hey. And I also say that maybe the Elvis movie isn't for me. I say that in this episode. And let me tell you, the Elvis movie is one of the greatest fucking movies I've ever seen. I gave Elvis a standing ovation in the theater after one of the performances, so I was wrong. First time in my life, but I was fucking wrong. Great movie. Sets he used to come in Jerry's when I was working there. Did he? Yeah, he was well, a good had, dude. You had a lot of them rolling through there. My buddy Jim Roop made me a tape. He used to, I used to play tapes behind the bar, and it was just lucky that the bar... I could put a cassette deck into the sound system, mm. into the speakers. It was so it was great to work there for that one of the one of the purposes. So my buddy makes me a tape of the first inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. Well, they're all rockabilly dudes. You right. know what I mean? Right. So Setzer comes in. Eddie Cochran. Yeah. So Setzer comes in, and I'm playing that tape. I see him come in, so I play the put the tape on. Right. And after a while, he's like, "What the hell is this?" And I said, my buddy made me a tape, and I had a dual cassette deck behind uh, the, the bar. bar yeah. And I told everybody, come in, bring me a blank. So I said, I said, next time you come in, bring me a blank. And he brings me a blank, and we hang out while I, uh, so I dub him the tape. Wow. It was very cool. So, we're, so I'm dubbing him a tape, right? And we're talking, and in walks Lisa Marie. Of course she's, she does. She's 18. Lisa Marie Presley? Yeah. Wow. So he's wow. like, we're listening to Elvis. Lisa Marie walks in, and she had just turned 18 and inherited like a million dollars. And she orders two drinks from me. She orders two white Russians. And, dude, she looks just like her fucking dad. Oh, yeah. She comes up to the fucking bar, and I'm looking at her, and I'm like, it's the king, you know? I know she's 18. It's the 80s. I mean, who gives a fuck? So I serve her the two white Russians, and I knew she inherited a, a million bucks in like 85. We could find out when her birthday is. And she stiffs me. She, sti no. she stiffs me. Doesn't no. give me a fucking nickel on a tip. No. She's 18, so she walks out. She comes back in, and Setzer's talking to her. You know, it's fucking great. And she comes back in. She wants two more. I go, look, I gave you those last two drinks for your fucking dad. I know you're 18. You stiffed me. Get the fuck out of here. 
That's great. Yeah, and she comes back. I don't think it was not her husband at the time, Danny Keel. He comes in. He goes, "Hey, I'm sorry." I go, "Look, man." I go, "You know, bitch has got a, a million fucking bucks, man. I'm trying to make a nickel here." And he says, "I know, I know." So he, you know, he ordered the drinks. I knew he was bringing them to her out there. You know, it was just like, whatever, man. You know, but uh, yeah, but Setzer was cool. Yes, sir. I noticed. Yeah. No, it's an SM7. It'd be fine. It's a dynamic microphone. <laughs> Look at this guy. We got this guy here. No, these are great microphones. This is a Michael Jackson used to sing on. Really? Yeah. To the kids? <laughs> yeah, so Michael Frondelli. Not from Bluth Memorial, but from another hospital in another Queens. Another hospital. In Queens. Yeah. So, were your family immigrants? Your, my dad was. Your dad? Yeah, my dad came from a small town in Italy, um, near Bari, Italy. Mm -hmm. My mother's family came from Sicily, but my dad was born there. Mom right. was born in New York. Anybody else? Musicians in your family? Because I, I think of you, I know your history, but when I first met you, you were playing guitar and stuff, so I think of you as a musician first. Was there other musical folks in the family? Yeah, well, my grandfather. Right. My grandfather played all the old Italian songs. On Saturdays, we'd go to my mom's family, which was huge. My mom was one of seven. And my Uncle Johnny played uh, mandolin, guitar, and accordion. And my grandfather played guitar. And there was another guy named Piccolo Pete who played uh, piccolo, mandolin, I hope. mandolin and guitar. Yeah, I think he played piccolo. I never heard the piccolo, though. And they would drink my grandfather's uh, Dago red wine and... Uh, um, get loaded and uh, play and argue and fight and do all that good stuff and have a lot of food. Yeah, a lot of food. A lot of food. A lot of food. What was growing up in, in Queens back in the day? What was it like? What I remember, it was uh, a little hamlet, you know, uh, a little area called East Elmhurst near LaGuardia Airport. And everybody knew everybody. Right. Both my grandparents lived within three blocks of where I grew up. In fact, St. Michael's Cemetery is there. Frank Costello's buried there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the mausoleum that the mob blew up just, just because. Just to send a point home that you're not really dead until you're dead. Yeah. And um, huh. it was just a small neighborhood. A lot of blue-collar workers, right. mostly working for the city, Irish, Italian, Polish, you know, mostly white neighborhood. Right. It wasn't until you got to further, I guess it would have been northeast into Corona and Dittmars that you would go into the the black neighborhoods, which is where Louis Armstrong uh, later lived. Did he keep an apartment there? Was it in Queens? He kept an apartment like his whole life? No, it was later in life, I believe. It's a house. Right. And now it's a museum. Oh, okay. And in fact, Queens College has his archives because... Uh, uh, Louis was a very interesting character. I learned later that Louis would um, take a tape recorder on the road and record jam sessions in his hotel room. So he's got all these archive tapes of all these musicians he worked with on tour. Right. So Queens College is the custodian of the archive and to restore it. And I don't know what they're going to do with everything, but it's fascinating. I just always considered him from like New Orleans or something. I mean, yeah. until, until recent years. Yeah. I didn't realize that he was from Queens and then I heard he had a place there that he kept forever. 
yeah. somehow he wound up in this neighborhood. It's a, it was a little enclave. It was probably, I had relatives that lived there, Italians that lived there, but it later became more of a black neighborhood. Right. In fact, between semesters at college, I was a mailman, and I used to deliver mail there in the summertime, uh, one summer between semesters. When the living is easy, summertime. That's it. That's it. When I used to get caught in those uh, hailstorms, right? You know, 100% humidity. Yeah. Hide in the lock boxes because they were coming out of my head. It's a very interesting neighborhood. It was all adjacent to LaGuardia Airport, mm -hmm. to the um, to the runways and the terminals, old Dittmar's Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Before Henry Hill. Before Henry it? Hill. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Paul Simon grew up in Corona. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was from yeah. that area. And Don Rickles is from Jackson Heights, so not too far. And I mentioned Henry Hill. I mean, LaGuardia, obviously, from Goodfellas, and Ray, Ray Liotta died yesterday or the day before? Yesterday. Yesterday. Think, yeah. It just seems so bizarre, you know. So shout out to Ray, one of the greats. Yeah, we talked earlier. I had yeah. Ray in, in the Capitol. We shot part of um, the movie The Rat Pack there. That's right. He played Sinatra, right? He played Sinatra, yeah. In fact, I spent time with him because he wanted to know some inside stories about what it was like with Sinatra in the studios and, uh, you know. What was it like with Sinatra in the studios? All hands on deck. You know, it was the 9,000-pound gorilla. got whatever he wanted. He hadn't been in the studio uh, in at least 10 years. He was 79. And um, we had rehearsals with triple-scale musicians for, like, almost two weeks in advance with Frank Sinatra sound-alikes coming in. Also, we had other singers that were prop singers, so to right. speak, who would sort of reenact these duets that we were going to be doing on the duets albums. Yeah, I do want to get to that. How are we doing on the wood chipper, Scott? Do we hear it on the... Uh... I don't think it's coming through. I just love that, that we sit down for a little podcast with Mr. Frondelli and we get a wood chipper outside. <laughs> yeah, you, I, you I... need me to have a conversation with you? <laughs> <laughs> Make me an offer. I wouldn't. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, uh, You're well, interrupting my podcast. Exactly. Here we go. We just got the barter system. You need a little uh, website stuff. He needs a little information. No, sure. That's no. how it goes. No problem. That's how it goes. We miss you. So I want to get through the childhood, and then I want to get the car, of course, get the Capitol Records and, and Frank. In a lot of years before that. Yeah. Before Capitol. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. We're going to get Electric Lady Studios. But I'm curious, when did you know that you wanted to do music how old were you when you you thought hey this is a thing i could do or i want to do this or that you really focused on playing i saw elvis presley really yeah i saw elvis presley on the sullivan show i drove my parents crazy to buy the record blue suede shoes it was the first rock and roll record right that my parents bought for me up to that time i was listening to oklahoma and gene autry and right. you know all the cowboy stuff and i saw elvis on TV, right. on the little black and white TV we had at home. Right. And I just totally... Yeah, I'm sorry. The wood chippers. <laughs> so, yeah, huge fan. Just reading a review of the new Elvis movie. That's right, uh, that's coming out. Yeah. It wasn't a bad review. It didn't really put it down, but it, I don't think it's the Elvis movie I want to see. And I haven't seen it yet, so maybe I shouldn't say. But Bio, anyway... Biopics are very, very hard to do unless you have the original artist. Right. Like what... I did with Taylor Hackford and Keith right. Richards for Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. Right. Or I also worked with Taylor Hackford as a consultant on Ray. Right. 
and I went down to New Orleans and they did a pretty good job on that. I thought it Jamie they were pretty Fox. true. Jamie yeah. Foxx was amazing. Yeah, he had it. He's he's an amazing actor. But he was anointed by Quincy. He was anointed by Ray. Ray took him under his wing because he right. saw that that he you know Jamie can sing. Yeah. And Jamie can and play. play. And yeah. play. Yeah. And that he was a true fan, and that he was real, and you know he knew he was going to be well represented. Yeah. Getting back to you said watching the little black and white of Elvis mm -hmm. inspired you. Sure. Think of that Ed Sullivan show, two acts in my mind growing up, and we're similar vintage, was Elvis, yep. and then of course the Beatles coming, you know, that, how many careers of that spawned right away? Kid ran out and got a guitar the next day, you know? Yeah. Oh, so. but it was every week. Once Ed started, uh, or opened up the floodgates. To good the, call, that's a good call. Once Ed opened up the floodgates to the British invasion, it was just relentless. It was on. It was on. It was it was the Dave Clark Five. It yeah. was the Animals. The Animals is the one that came to mind for me. It was you such know, an underrated band to me. I love the Animals. Did anybody in, in this room see Eric Burden almost die in a small venue? No, I uh, didn't see that. I did. A little place in a valley called Filthy McNasty's. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. He literally kept huffing and puffing and going behind the stage and tried to finish his song, and then he just left. The promoter came out and said, Mr. Burden had to leave this evening, so... He, I, don't, he, I don't know what happened, but... He was in poor health. He, I mean, yeah. he's still alive, but he almost expired. Right. It was a well-known fact. There was no social media back then. Well, he might have been backstage. He might have spilled the wine or something. Whoa, you know, you know, but he so. dug that girl. I like that. So I actually had that multi-track master and put it up at Capitol. I pulled it out of the archive to wow. listen to that and remix it. Really? Well, all his stuff with war afterwards to me was so revolutionary too. Oh sure. I mean if you listen to a lot there's an album I forget the name of it but they have all that genre and it's very funky it's very world music it's Well they were emulating all these black artists they heard here in the United States. I mean um, when I worked on Hail Hail Rock and Roll and I was having a conversation uh, with Keith and, and Eric Clapton he was talking about how when they first heard Stevie Winwood, how it sounded like a, another Ray Charles. Right. So it was all his white soul, you know, his blue-eyed soul right. you know, that they were, they were coming back with. And, and the thing was that the, um, what I learned, too, was that um, Hendrix was really pivotal for a lot of these British guitar players because, in Eric's mind, he always wanted to play on the black circuit, on the chitlin circuit, and be able to do what Jimmy did. Right. You know, playing with King Curtis and playing with uh, Little Richard and being part of that. They could never be part of that, but Jimmy was. So Jimmy was authentic, you know. Pretty fascinating. What was it like the first time you saw him play? Who? Jimi Hendrix. I never saw him play live. You didn't? No. Oh, wow. I never wow. got to see him live. I see him because he played a lot in New York. So I no, I didn't thought. see him live. In fact, when, when I came to Electric Lady, it was November 5th, 1975, and he was already passed. But I met Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. They had come down yeah. uh, over the years. Uh, also, um, Gil Scott Herrin was also oh, a regular. One of the greats. You, you had mentioned King Curtis, though, and I had a uh, story when the first time I ever heard Memphis Soul Stew. Mm-hmm which is an amazing song. And, I mean, this is probably, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago. I've obviously been out for years, but I hadn't heard it. 
and a buddy of mine, my buddy Jim, who made a lot of tapes for me, put it put it down. I just thought it was fantastic. And I went to Jerry's Deli, and Bobby Womack was there. Oh, yeah. And I said, Mr. B, he used to call him Mr. B, Mr. B, Mr. B, I just heard this great song, man. Memphis Soul Stew, Memphis Soul Stew. And he goes, that's me. And I said, what? He goes, Memphis Soul is, is he goes, that, that's me. He kept saying, that's me, and I kept talking about the song. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm that Boylan Memphis guitar. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, that's me. And the Valentinos, like, man. Yeah, that yeah. was him. The Valentinos. Actually, he was a regular at Capitol too. I got to meet him there. Yeah, I never met him through Keith, but the Stones revered them. I mean, oh yeah, you know. Oh, he used to come in. He was doing like demos with uh, Ronnie Wood, yeah. and he'd come in after the sessions to the bar at Jerry's, and he'd bring tapes, and I put them in my that cassette deck, and we'd be like, "This is what we're working on, man." Is yeah. what we're working it's on. funny, Michael. You said that the Stones, in particular, and I think a lot of the British. Um, inspiration of that era um, were, were inspired by the black artists. But I always respected Keith Richards so much for championing old blues artists like Muddy Waters, oh, yeah. old country artists, old reggae artists. You know, he always tried to give them their due. Absolutely. It was interesting because when we were working on Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, uh, we were working between New York, St. Louis, and uh, L.A. And when we were mixing in New York, Keith lived in Soho, not, well, I guess Soho, uh, South Broadway. He used to live above Tower Records. They had a triplex there. And uh, he would tell me stories about, you know, first tour coming through the United States. They were opening for Little Richard. And wow. uh, he says, we used to do our set. He says, and then we run backstage, change, and get out because we never knew where in the house Richard was going to come out. <laughs> uh, there was a spotlight somewhere, and you had to find Richard, you know. There was a famous show here, the Tammy Show. The Remember Tammy that show. at yeah, the Santa the Monica show. Civic? And I got a VHS of the wow. Tammy Show. And it had such a broad, diverse range of acts. But the rumor was the Jagger, when James Brown came on, mm -hmm. he stole his act. He, stole he just his... sat, sat in the wing and said, okay, all right, he does that then, okay. He was Keith to told do... me the story. Oh, wow. Keith told me the story. He said, we knew. He said, Mick knew. He said, there was no way that after we'd have to follow James Brown, what are we going to do? Because up to that time, if you saw Mick, he was like, you know, all this and like, you know, staying in front of a microphone stiff. He said that changed his whole act. Right. He said, seeing James Brown, he, says, he just had to pull out all the stops. It was James Brown that changed them. He said, um, he said, and years later it changed, you know, when we were starting big stadiums and he was doing his, you know, his rooster and all yeah. that. And it's interesting because I worked on an album with Eddie Kramer called Love You Live, which was the uh, Stones Live at the Elma Combo, mm. where Keith was under house arrest in Toronto. And Mick had come back to New York, and we were working in Electric Lady A, and um, uh, we were doing re-records, repairing or changing some of the vocals on the track, and we'd set that up for Mick. And he came in the studio, and he would come in, and he was in a you know, a tweed jacket with, you know, round plastic horn ring glasses, you know, being very, very conservative, very, very introverted. Put a mic out there and set him up with a harmonica to do, you know, like Manish Boy or something like that. And he'd go into character, just turn right on, right on. And then years later, when I was working on Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll, Keith and Mick were feuding. Right, right. Wait a minute. I can't believe that. <laughs> 
the married yeah. couple. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He was calling her her and she before it was popular. <laughs> yes. They had quite cute names for each other. <laughs> but Keith would always say, no matter how much we fight, you put us in a room together, we always come out with something great. Man, Brian. You know what I love doing? Yeah. I love tapping that subscribe button. Mmm. I love it too, son. And just like all your dates, I tap it last. But nothing's as good as tapping this button. You see Brian here? He's not always doing the best. Financially, mentally, physically, for sure. You want to help keep Brian off the streets of Hollywood? There's a way you can help. Join us on Patreon. You want to tell them what we got on there, buddy? Yes, we have the general admission, we have the backstage, and we have the VIP all-access pass. So please, join today. I'm due for a bath. In the arms of the Right. No, geniuses. Geniuses. I yeah, mean, yeah. Uh, and clever thieves. And, and Right, right. That's well put. I would walk Keith home every morning. So we'd work through the night. And, uh, you know, 8th Street between 6th and McDougal in Manhattan, you know what that's like. Uh, you get up early in the morning, 10 o'clock, and everybody yeah. smells like cologne and shaving cream and, you know, shampoo. And you go up on 8th Street and you look east and then the sun is like loud, you know. And um, so I'd walk Keith east to Broadway, and then we'd walk downtown, and I'd walk him home because he liked to walk. And, um, you know, he would tell stories. He was just, you know, sort of blended in with, uh, you know, the whole scene. And then I'd walk him to the triplex and go up in the, in the elevator, and there's Patty with the two twins at the time, mm -hmm. Theodore and Alexandra. He says, I'm no fool, little T&A. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then who's he got? He got somebody in the dining room. It's Don Covey. Okay. Wow. And I said, you know, so Patty's giving me a little bit of stink eye, you know, her, her old man's home. And, you know, okay, I got to go because we got to be back here and I got to get some sleep. Right. Because he doesn't know whether it's day or night. He don't care. And he's yeah. Just, he's rock and roll all the way. Right. But sweet, you know. Gold and platinum records and boxes, pieces of guitars everywhere. You know, it's just like Ronnie Wood artwork. And mm. so he goes in the dining room and he's sitting around a table and it's like we're sitting, they're sitting across from one another and they're screaming at each other, Don Covey, about who wrote what on what song. And, and I said, Keith, maybe she goes, no, hang out, man, hang out. And I said, okay, you know, what are we going to do? You know, it's Keith. Yet they had such a deep respect for one another you know no matter how successful keith was mm -hmm. he was still he had his feet on the street right he was just really really um you know soulful and when he called when we how i got to meet keith was um i got a referral uh from a really nice woman named betty hissiger uh and she worked for ronald Luxemburg. um it was, I believe it was at Infinity Records. She was a fabulous lady. I haven't seen her in years. And um, she introduced me through Jane Rose, who was managing Keith, uh, to mix a single for the film 
Jumpin' Jack Flash. Right. Starring Steve Collins. Yeah. And Whoopi Goldberg. Right. Aretha sang the track. Right. And so we're mixing. It was uh, produced by Steve Lillywhite right. and Keith. We're mixing it in Studio C at Electric Lady, where I had worked with Billy Idol on Revelio, and it was all familiar and all fun. So that's that's how we met, and during the process, we hit it off, and, he's, and Keith said to me, he says, you know, Michael, he's like, oh, this film I want to do, he says, about Chuck Berry. I said, yeah. He says, there's not a lot of money in it. He said, but it's my payback to Chuck Berry for all the money the Stones made off of Chuck Berry's music. Right. What am I going to say? No. Right. You know, I wouldn't be in my right mind to say right. to Keith Richards. Besides, what a great thing to do, you know, considering that this is sort of his homage and to his hero, uh, to somebody uh, who, whose records inspired them both, because the story was the, that Keith told me was that uh, uh, he met Mick on a tube station. Right. And Mick was in a family that had some money. Right. And uh, Mick was carrying these imported Chuck Berry records. And Keith saw him on the platform, and they just struck up a conversation. And that's right. how it started. Right. And the rest is rock and roll history. The rest is rock and roll history. In yeah. fact, it's, it's rock and roll uh, present, too. They're still going strong. No, I, what an amazing, you know, long career. And they've been relevant. It's not like they phoned it in. I think all their work has been good. I mean, I love the work he did with Graham Parsons. Oh, sure. The Wild Horses, to me, is one of the most amazing songs of all time. Well, we did the Graham Parsons tribute at the Universal Amphitheater. Wow, what was that like? It was Keith Richards, Nora Jones, Dwight Yoakam, Steve Earle, Raul Malo. <sighs> It was for Graham's daughter who had put it on, and it was produced by Stephanie Bennett from Delilah Films, with who had already done. Uh, we did um, Hail Hail Rock and Roll. I had done a lot of work with her over the years. We did a 13-show series out of Philadelphia at the World Cafe Live, and all kinds of acts. And then we did shortly thereafter we did uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire in Chicago live at the Greek. Come on now. But the Graham Parsons tribute was for his daughter. And it was it was the you know return to Sin City. In fact, Bryson Jones was with the Sin City All Stars. Him and Johnny Kaplan they, wow. opened the, they opened the show. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's how I met Bryson. That's funny. Newport, Arkansas. God damn it! You that's know how it. I met Bryson? No. Yeah, we were at a Johnny Cash show with some Arkansas people, and I was with my buddy uh, Joe McCracken, who passed away way too young. He was Billy Bob Thornton's assistant. Okay. And so Joe had been in a bar fight, so he had some broken ribs. And so I hear Bryson behind us getting in a, a scrape with some guys. And these guys, uh, you know, they go, they go, well, maybe if you were from the South, you'd have a little more manners. They're screaming at Bryson. He goes, I'm from Newport, Arkansas. God damn it. And Joe's getting up. And Joe's got broken ribs. And I just met Joe. And I'm like, it's my buddy, man. I, I, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to get in a fight at the at the Johnny Cash concert. And I turn around and these two boys who are who are gonna go at it with Bryson, one guy's got bandages across his face like he's had a broken <laughs> nose in a fight. And this guy wants to get in another fight. And I'm like, Oh come on, man. <laughs> and I gotta stand up for my guy because and he was he was a he was a rough character. He was ready to get into it and for some reason it dissipated. 
I thought this motherfucker with a broken nose is just ready to get down, and uh, and it dissipated. And that's where I met Bryson, and I brought that up to him because uh, I hadn't seen him in years. Joe mm -hmm. Joe had passed away, and I hadn't seen Bryson. And so when I saw him at Thursday night, you know, he uh, I told him Newport, Arkansas, guy, and he said, "Yeah, that might have been pre-programmed." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, his my favorite line of Bryson's man. He talks about you know he wears one of those rodeo buckles, man. He says it's my redneck ID. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good dude, man. He's a great dude. He's a I good love dude. Bryson. Yeah. No, Michael, I'm always fascinated with the creative process, mm -hmm. and obviously you've been on the front lines of seeing it, being a part of it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell when you meet a new artist that they have it? Yeah, I mean, I keep an open mind because what you see isn't always what they are. So I have to wait till I hear it and spend time with them to get to know. Because it's a, it's a bit of a deeper subject when you start to get into the literary side of what, what a true artist writes, whether or not they're capable of creating material that's authentic to their personality that they can sell. Right, there's interpreter of material, and then there's the true singer-songwriter that you know, is, is the, to me, the great musicians, the ones who write their own stuff. Absolutely. I, I, but there's also great interpreters. Through Sinatra. Yeah. So you get people who can interpret great songs too. You know, Sinatra always told stories and he always knew what good songs were and knew who the good writers were. He had a great um, sense about him for what worked for him. Um, you know, I mean, he did something by George Harrison. He said that was the greatest song ever written, right? Yeah, he loved that yeah, song. Yeah, it's and a great song. It's a great song. So he sang like an improvisational jazz player. I mean, his phrasing was uh, well. The thing with Sinatra, yeah, that's true. You 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 bring up a good point because sorry to anyone I interrupt, but yeah, that's why you're here. Sinatra was able to sustain notes better than anybody. He learned how to circular breathe from Tommy, right. Tommy Dorsey, mm. watching him play trombone. Really? Yeah, that's how he learned. Because if you listen to what Frank does, he can hold over. He can hold notes for you know two bars. It's just amazing how he had that kind of control and pitch. I'm trying to think of the cat, the horn player, black cat. Who played? Who Roland did the, Kirk? Yes. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, did he, the circular breathing. Played two or three instruments at, at a time. At the same time, yeah. He yeah. used to play the five spot. Yeah. In, 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 yeah. On St. Mark's Place yeah. in the village. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rashawn yeah. Roland Kirk, man. Yeah. Some amazing. Yeah. Amazing so you have stuff. people who can do that and who learn how to master that, which is which is an ancient technique because that's the same technique they use for people who play didgeridoos in Australia. Right. I worked with a. Australian band called Yothu Yindi <laughs> that played didgeridoos. I mixed the record for them. Yeah, I caught them at the uh, whiskey. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now, Michael, have you ever been so immersed? I know it's your job and, and you're creating, and, but the magic of what you were witnessing hit you so strong, you almost had a surreal moment when you went, oh, my God, this guy is like the greatest I've ever seen, or woman is the greatest I've ever seen. Yeah, I... I've had those experiences where I felt that certain artists had been channeling other artists that, that were remarkable. 
I remember when we recorded the vocals for Rebel Yell and uh, in the bridge section where, uh, you know, it was the second coming of Jim Morrison, mm. the way Billy interpreted that. And he was just being himself. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to do it. It was just that it came out that way. And it's when that the hair on my arm stand up, you know, when I get that chill, you just sit there and you go, oh, my God, we got it. We got something here that's so special. Because part of being a, uh, an engineer and a great producer, which I aspire to be, I don't know if there's a level of greatness that I've yet achieved, but it's where you make the artist so comfortable that they can be genuine, be themselves, and you can inspire them, you know, allow them to exceed their own expectations. It's not always easy to do. But if they have it in them, it'll come out. But a lot of times, it's just a matter of setting the stage for them and giving them the, that freedom, that artistic freedom that, you know, it's like clothes off, I don't care, doesn't matter, what do you need, go for it. Right, it's like a sports analogy. Uh, Brian and I are big basketball guys. Mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe one artist needs a little pushing, one artist needs to pull back on the reins. I mean, I guess it's how well you know their personalities too. And... And if the moment is there, and if they're in the zone, and you know you can bring it up another level. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about safety for them. And it's about vulnerability. It's about not being afraid to make mistakes. You know, you don't know how far too far is until you go past it. And I encourage people to go past that. I encourage artists to do that because you don't know. You haven't been there before. You don't know. It might be great. And a lot of times... What happens with artists is that they don't necessarily, especially if they're new, uh, they haven't done it enough to know what not to do. A lot of times uh, it's just raw, and if it's raw, it's great. But then to harness the raw for them to give them some tools to work with so that they can actually utilize those things. If you can recognize them and saying, you know, you did this here earlier, and it really came out great, and I love what you did. Can we put that in this section as well? Can you find some ad-libs, or can you find a way to uh, take that section and just put it over the top? Or a lot of times they'll sing in a lower register, but the higher register is where they really need to be in order for the song just to explode in a certain section. So you want to guide them but not take away their song from them. You can't take away their art from them. When you start taking it away from them, it's, it's, it, it really gets into be a, a challenging situation, I find. No, it's got to be a very fine, delicate balance that you strike. Yeah, it takes years of wisdom to be able to not do that, too, because you want to control the outcome. Uh, I have to admit I'm a bit of a control freak, and I want to do that, but I don't know... I have to let a lot of that go in working with the artists because, you know, the interesting thing about artists is are they interesting? People don't buy normal. Right. That's for sure. People don't buy normal. Nobody wants to hear normal. They want to hear, you know, the struggle. They want to hear the conquest. They want to hear something that they can relate to uh, that's inspirational. Um, a lot of these people come from tough, tough childhoods. And, um, you know, uh, look at what happened with John Lennon. Right. You know, with his dad. 
right. and his mom. Uh, so you see situations like this, and you say, where does it come from? Where do these stories come from? Where does the inspiration come from? And, you know, if you, if you evolve in life and you start to read The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell, sure. and, yeah, and you start to understand it. the principle in which a lot of what inspires us stands on, um, and the struggle to get past it, and the rise and fall in many cases, you know, whether it's substance abuse, I mean, dealt with a lot of that with artists, you know. We had a way for the mules to come in to bring the heroin in some cases, you know. Wow. So somebody can get straight to perform, mm. you know. And it's not unlike a lot of the jazz artists from the, uh, right. you know, the 30s and 40s that had the same issues. Right. It, it's funny you say jazz because I think of great art and I think of um, pain being channeled a lot of times. The greatest um, vocals I've heard a lot come from, like you said, past experience of some kind of pain that they're almost cathartically letting out. I think of Chet Baker. Oh, sure. Chet Baker, to me, had the most soul and the most pain coming through his vocals and his trumpet playing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's, I'm sure you saw a lot of that kind of thing and all the vast, I mean, I'm blown away by, it's not just one specific genre you worked with. You had a really broad base of clientele. Yeah. I got to work in a lot of jazz fusion. Electric Lady was a hotbed of activity um, because of, you know, the legacy of Jimmy. It attracted not only the, the great rock and roll artists, but R&B and, uh, and jazz artists. And a lot of jazz fusion came out of, came out of Electric Lady. Studio B was the cheaper room. It was like that, you know, for, for a lot of artists. You have the rock and roll stars up in the big room, and, uh, you know, they go in the lounge, smoke a little weed with the jazz artists, and they say, hey, man, you know, I love what you do, man, but I can't read music. Well, come on in. Play. Let's see what you can do. Can you blow? Let's see. You know, one of the great guitarists in the world people, you know, should know more about is Ray Gomez. Met him through Stanley Clark and Jocko Pastorius. Mm. I worked with him on uh, an Ian Hunter record on All-American Alien Boy. Right. Well, he was doing portraits of Tracy, Bobby Columbia, up at Camp Columbia, up in uh, upstate New York. You know, there was that mixture. There was that mixture in New York City because uh, you had the jazz clubs. They were still around. Uh, do you know about McKeld's? I don't know about McKeld's. McKeld's, no. 97th and Broadway. Mm. Excuse me, 97th and Columbus. Pat and Mike McKell had this club. Um, when I started out, I started out in a studio called Broadway Recording at 1697 Broadway in the Ed Sullivan Theater Building. Oh, okay. On the ninth floor. I started out as a maintenance tech, uh, working a day shift to train, and then finally worked night shifts, and then became, started engineering. R&B, Latin, and pop studio. I used to do Tony Orlando and Dawn with Hank Metris and Dave Apple, or producers like Levine and Brown, Hugo and Luigi, Hugo and Luigi, who did a lot of work with the stylistics, and Sam Cooke. Oh, shit. Sam um, Cooke, okay. Sam Cooke wasn't there, but, you know, yeah. there, was, right. there was a lot of that was done out here. Bet you got by Golly Wow? Was that the yeah, stylistics? Yeah, that was the stylistics. Yeah. I love me some Tony Orlando. I don't want it to go over, you know. I don't, I no, don't Candida is one of the great songs of all time Knock three me. times. Times on the man. ceiling, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I and love Candida. I grew up, some chicks thought, thought he was singing... Wipe on the pipe if the answer is no. <laughs> so I used to work a shift, and then 
I had enough time to go up, you know, shift and get done a little early, like eight, nine o'clock, and I go uptown to 97th Columbus. I, you know, jump on a train and go up to 97th Columbus, and uh, this club was amazing. It had the Gordon Edwards Encyclopedia of Soul, and it was uh, this group of musicians that backed up uh, Aretha Franklin mm. and Phoebe Snow and worked on records with Phil Ramone, so it was Richard T., uh, Cornell Dupree, who played with King Curtis hmm. when King Curtis and had Jimi Hendrix in, in the band. Right. He was a guitar player. Eric Gale. Um, Gordon Edwards played bass. And uh, various drummers. It was either going to be uh, Steve Gadd. Damn. Uh, Steve Gadd, Chris Parker, or this young kid named Steve Jordan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know, Spencer uh, Winos. Yeah, who used to laugh at the old men because he was this young kid and say, hey, man, you got to keep up with me. So he would lie about his age to get yeah, to the club. And Steve just took over for Charlie Watts. So anyway. So I would go up there for, you know, a dollar. It was a dollar to get in. And I'd buy a beer. And I'd be sitting here at a table, and the band would be right there. Wow. And I'd be studying Cornell Dupree. And just listen to them talk to each other on stage while they were playing. And they would do like 20-minute versions of Love the One You're With, modulating like four or five times. Or, and then people would come in and sit in. You know, Phoebe Snow, Michael Brecker would come in and play saxophone. Wow. Just because they were playing charts all day long. They were playing the ink. And they were getting so bored that they had a blow, man. You've been watching Brian Lally, Hollywood Native. Now I want to talk to you about something I'm really passionate about, and that's teaching acting. So I co-founded Lola's Acting School with my son, Kyle Lally, Lally or Lally Acting School. I've been acting for a, a long time now, of 100-plus credits on IMDb, hundreds of plays I've been involved with over the years, and I just want to share that experience with you. What we do differently here at Lola's is we give you practical advice that you can use on a movie set, on a play, an audition, anywhere. We give you the foundation to build yourself as a great actor. If you come to us, you don't know anything. We can teach you everything you need to know to be comfortable on a, on a set and to excel. Don't just listen to me. Look at what our students are doing. Daryl Wesley, who is writing on two hit shows, The Game and The Upshaws, and Ben Barrett, who is a series regular on The Politician, Megan Davis who is uh, playing Amber Heard in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard story. Come check us out. We're at the Historic Arc Theater in the NoHo Arts District. You ever want to try plant-based eating? I have. What, you're a little confused, overwhelmed, you don't know how to get started? Definitely. Well, there's a simple answer to that. Go to Debbie Chu's Chew On Vegan YouTube channel. Debbie Chu is a plant-based RN. I've known Debbie for over 38 years, and she's very good at what she does. You go to the channel, and there's 300, over 300, recipes. They're simple, easy to make, and they're delicious. If you want to try it, you just might get healthy. Give it a shot. Chew on vegan. And it was just such a great experience yeah. to sit there. I might have been 22 or 23 at the time, you know, aspiring to be a guitar player, and then watching these guys and just like, oh, my God, Cornell Dupree be biting on his pipe and... And it was just a funny experience because they had this intuitive communication about, you know, changing keys and doing all that. And, and Richard T. was such a great piano player. He'd take you to gospel to Gershwin and, and just bring you right to church. 
right. and then soulfully just move it all around, playing this this little baby grand piano on stage. Uh, so they'd be modulating, and Cornell said, "What key we in?" Mike down his pipe. He said, "What key we in now?" And he says, "And Gordon be playing his bass, saying, you fucked it up. Now you fix it, man.'" <laughs> they were just having a good time, just mm -hmm. just playing, and it was for me. It was just like you know being in in the heart of R and B and soul and my favorite music. Smalt's Paradise was still going on uh, for a minute. You know when I was working for SIR, delivering Hammond B3s and percussion kits and doing all that stuff and drums. Um, it was pretty, the 70s were pretty uh, amazing in New York. I just found, you know, the whole club scene was pretty rich in the jazz clubs. Rock and roll clubs are still around. A lot of folk clubs too, or folk had already been through? That was more 60s. More 60s? I yeah. came at the tail end of that because I was trying to make it as a folk guitarist and mm. playing Kenny's Castaways and Gertie's Folk City, you know, in the village, uh, doing the thing when I had, you know, frizzy hair and a big fro and a beard, you know, and trying to make it in a, um, like Fred Neal, you know, uh, the Dolphins, you know, I was a big Fred Neal fan and... The folk scene had stopped. Pete Seeger was around. Pete Seeger used to travel around on his sloop in Brooklyn in the water, you know, right. and do these sound outs, these concerts against the war and things like that. There was that whole Washington Square Park vibe that was now on a boat. And Washington Square Park was right around from, right around the corner from Electric. Yeah, Park. yeah, right around the block. But by the 70s, that had changed. You know, we'd already been like Max's Kansas City and glam and disco and all that was happening. Right. And then Danceteria and the Mud Club and CBGBs and all that was happening in the early 70s. And Electric Lady was connected to CBGBs because the studio manager, Gail, had been dating Hilly Crystal at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, so we had Richard Hell and the Voidoids. And, right. You know, we had the Dead Boys with Cheetah Chrome and all that was going on. And so again, there it was. It was the melting pot. It was punk. It was fusion, jazz fusion. It was mainstream rock and roll, you know, with the Stones and Zeppelin. You know, I was working with Eddie Kramer on The Song Remains the Same, the film, and Studio mm. B on Jimmy Page's 33rd birthday with uh, Bonzo and uh, John Paul Jones coming in. Still alive. Yeah, he was still alive. I never met Plant. No. Uh, but, you know, Jimmy Page, he was the bomb, man. That was that was the cat. Um, yeah, it was, it was Mecca. And I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with the right people. I didn't want to go home. In fact, right. I have all my timesheets from Electric Lady for the nine years that I worked there. Jesus. And I have the work orders of all the projects I worked on. And I looked at my timesheets and I was working 100 hour weeks. Jeez. I would make five bucks an hour when I worked. When I worked with a house engineer as a second engineer, and when I worked with an outside engineer, I would make 10 bucks an hour. I said, yeah, man, bring on those outside engineers. <laughs> so I work 100 hour weeks, right. 80, 100 hours right. on the average. Right. Where were you living? I was living in Brooklyn. Yeah. I was living in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Park Slope, is that two trains from? Uh... One. 
It's only one? It would west 4th to, I could take the F train to 9th Street uh, and 7th Avenue in Brooklyn. Okay. And I'd walk to 3rd Street. I'd live okay. on 3rd between 6th and 7th. West 4th platform is famous for the basketball they play upstairs. Oh, oh yeah. really? Yeah. That's where some yeah. of the best games are. Yeah, when I was living there, I'd watch these cats. It, it's windy out. It's windy, and these guys are just shooting threes all day, and I'm like, wow. Yeah, you don't want to get a foul on that court. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I wouldn't go home because they'd say to me, can you uh, do this session? I'd say, yeah, I'll crash out upstairs. Right. So, you know, bring a toothbrush and another shirt and, you know. Yeah. Sleep in and... Because Michael Jeffries had an apartment up there who was Jimmy's manager. Right. That was the, uh, the manager who mysteriously died in a plane collision over Mallorca, Spain. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Michael Jeffries. In fact, I have his file cabinet in my locker. It's got all the, uh, the uh, dividers with all the um, venues that Jimmy was playing. Because he used to also um, he used to manage Soft Machine, too. Okay. He was a British citizen, so Electric Lady, it was owned by an estate of Michael Jeffries. Right. It was a foreign estate with American holdings, and there was this attorney named Maxwell Cohen who was the administrator for the estate. He knew nothing about the studio business. Knew, right. You know. Right. It was later bought out in 77 by the father and son who uh, owned um, a plastics company used to make display plastic displays for like shoes shoe stores and stuff and and made plastic fittings for boats like for you know like cup holders and things like that that you know for marine and hal and alan selby and everything changed from there they bought out the estate so you know it was it was it was a it was a wild place it was a wild place. The guy who ran the front desk named Louis Velez, my favorite. Louis, we had a, so if, if you walk on 8th Street, there used to be this um, uh, doorway or this front of Electric Lady Studios that was, came out like a barrel. It was all brick. It came out like a barrel. Mm -hmm. And in that barrel, as you walked into the vestibule or the hallway, to go to the door, there was a portal. It was this round window right. with a camera, with a microphone. If you wanted to come in, you had to identify. And this is in the early 70s. Right. You had to say who you were, who you were here to see, and you were screened. So Louis Velez was the guy who used to screen you. And, and Louis used to work the window, especially with young girls. Was, you know, <laughs> Willie go, who are you here to see? Well, we want to know if we can come in. <laughs> Willie will work the room. I'll never forget there was a, a woman who came in. Uh, I, w I just happened to be there, and she wanted to come in and, and see the studios. Right. She wanted to be an engineer. Right. And there were very few women who wanted to be engineers back then. And uh, her name was Renata. And she came down, and she was German. She was a stewardess for Lufthansa. Well, she eventually was the girl who became Elton John's wife. Oh, well, okay. For the Stanza, it all goes back to Goodfellas. See? The whole, the whole conversation. Well, I grew up right near that airline yeah. diner. I know. See, there it is.
right there at the airline diner. When it's a cradle of civilization right there. When they grow up, Tommy and, uh, yeah. and Henry are sitting out there, and they're going to take that truck. The airline diner is right there. That's now where De Niro heard the news about Joe Pesci getting killed. Then he knocked. It wasn't a... No, well, that was in Long Island City. It was a different diner. Oh, it was? Yeah, it was a okay. different diner. That wasn't there. That was what Long Island know? City. Hold on. I grew where, up in where, where, where De Niro breaks the, the phone booth. And yeah, he knocks it over. He knocks and, it over. And Ray Liotta starts laughing because it was a prop booth, and he pushes the whole thing over. Uh, Vinny says, ah, there was nothing we could do. Yeah. That's, there was nothing we could do. Right. Yeah, I know every line in that movie. Yeah. I mean, that, that movie was shot, you know. I lived the whole Lufthansa heist. Right. My well, uncle was a Port Authority cop. It was Idlewild Airport. Yeah. Day. So we lived in that. Yeah, the whole thing. I, I didn't even, I knew about the Lufthansa heist at the time. Right. And that club that they burned down, it was all on Queens Boulevard. Oh, yeah? You know, you talk about Rebel Gale, which was a huge hit. And you worked with Chuck Mangione. That's a wide... No, but I'm talking about hit songs. Songs that kind of take over the, the culture. I mean, when you're working on these things, and you work on a lot of music mm -hmm. in your times, what is it like when you work on a song that just... It takes over the world. First of all, you get so close to what you're doing. Uh, if you're the engineer, if you're the producer, it's different. If you're the artist, it's different. Uh, you never know which way it's going to go. And the reasons that these records become successful are not always because of the song, it's because of the marketing and promotion money that's put behind it back then. Right. And for me, to hear it on the radio was always a thrill. Right. Uh, I heard stories from Al Schmidt, who was this you know, 28 Grammy Award winning engineer, Worked until he was 90, 91, just passed not too long ago. Fabulous engineer. Unbelievable. You know, he's a, a, a GOAT, you know, greatest of all time. And um, Al would tell me stories about when he was working on records uh, in New York. He said, yeah, man. He says, we would, I would, you know, mix the record. I would cut a lacquer on a cutting lathe, mm -hmm. that's how they used to do it, cut a lacquer disc. It's a lacquer-coated aluminum disc uh, and cut with a, a, a stylus. And uh, he said, yeah, I take the record and I run up to the radio station and I go and I play it and be on the radio. That's what it used to be like. Wow. But the way the marketing changed and the way payola happened and all that stuff, you know, was a whole, whole other thing. In fact, I was, uh, I was deposed by the Southern District of New York uh, when I was working at Electric Lady Studios. I had to give a deposition, give testimony, because they thought uh, I was somehow involved in a... I was laundering money through the studios pay, during the whole thing in 79 with Paola. Hmm. I spent six hours downtown Manhattan with these two federal agents. I knew nothing. I was not involved in anything. Right. But you, but know, you were Italian, so. You know, there could have been profiling. It uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't be surprising that they would do it. It was based around what was happening with Columbia Records. Right. And was oh, was this with the Clive Davis thing? No, I don't think it was Clive. Clive was something else. Yeah? Yeah, Clive was something else. 
This was more about paying DJs either through money or favors or things like that. Right, like, but that's not what brought him down. They they tried to. He was obviously he was exonerated. Okay, maybe it was just no. I just I've watched the soundtrack of our lives so many times. The Di Davis documentary. You've mm -hmm. seen that, haven't you? Yeah, it's phenomenal. But anyway, well, okay, go Clive ahead. Clive was always brilliant. In fact, his book first came out and it was one of the first ones I read. I was fascinated with him because of, you know, uh, one, being an attorney and having ears and, and the sense about him and how to talk to artists and things. Well, that's as random as Bernie Toppin and Elton John about him pulling out the uh, sheet. Elton John's, you know, uh, goes into the record company mm -hmm. like here. It pulls the name off a sheet and hands it to him and it's Bernie Toppin. He's running a legal department, and they go, yeah, you're taking over music, and he becomes the greatest ear of all time. You know what I mean? It's just, it's nuts. Well, you can call it kismet. You can call it serendipitous. You never know how things happen. No, way. I'm just saying. It's just nuts. He, was, he wasn't involved. There's no music in the family. But all you need to do is be a fan. That's really what it is. Because the thing that happens for well, me I in the studio is you have to be an artist's biggest fan. If you believe in it and you can make it happen and you got the, the, the ways and means to put behind it, mm -hmm. to promote it because you believe in it, right? you know, who knows? Right. You know, who, past this prologue, I mean, we're sitting here looking at, at Clive Davis now, how many hits later, you know? Right. Boom. Right. Boom. So it goes back to your question earlier, you know, what's it like, you know, when you know you got a record that's a hit? You know, Clive gets something in his gut, and um, it sticks with him. And he wants something more, and he starts organizing people around it and gets good counsel, and, you know, he's the master negotiator. Right. Listening to the recordings as you're making them and hearing these inspired performances, uh, I just know if I'm having fun. I know, for me, if it if it all fits together you can't make every song a hit not every song is a hit right it's not meant to be a hit right or as my friend richie zito the producer would say it always sounds better when it's a hit <laughs> not every song can be a hit right but it can be a great song right it can be a great song it could be a great interpretation of a song because it, it moves you right is it going to sell millions of records you know something and, in the way she moves well, uh, if you saw the Beatles uh, Get Back documentary, sure. you saw that what he came in with, right? and he brought it to John Lennon and said, I can't find, he says, I have this line, he said, but I don't know what to do. Right. And John said, well, keep mouthing the words, they don't have to make sense, but you'll get something. Yeah. So he eventually found it, there he was. Right. What about uh, working with Danny Elfman? Danny was a whole different ballgame. I was doing a lot of work for MCA Records. Wait, you had an Irish manager? I did. Was that wise? Yep. Failing with a PH? Jim did good by me. Jim did good by me. He was good. Jim didn't talk a lot, but he listened, he listened, he listened, and he closed the deal in five words, and that was it. Right. And, you know, that's all you needed. And I made money. Uh, he was, I was grateful he took me on after Rebel Yell, and, and then he tripled my income. So you can't say anything bad about that. I got a call to mix um, Dead Man's Party. Right. I didn't know a lot about Danny Elfman. At the right. Time, but anybody I would be referred to, I would do my homework and start to learn about Oingo Boingo. 
so before they were famous, I saw them 50 times. Did you really? I saw them everywhere. I was working at a stereo place called the Federated Group. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I'm working there, and I'm playing Oingo Boingo all the time, and the guy comes up to me and says, you know, Karen up, Karen up front, she was 17, cashier. She's like, well, that's Karen Bartek and Steve oh, really? Bartek's sister. Oh, really? And I'm like, what? So it was a lot of fun. So I got to, uh, not through her, I was just meeting the guys anyway because I'd go to shows. I'd go up and see them in uh, like the Stone Berkeley or, or Keystone Palo Alto. Mm. And there'd be like five people in the audience. You know what I mean? And they're still putting on a great show. But it was, uh, yeah. But Well, I remember I, I came out and uh, the woman who represented him, who still represents him today, well, she, she wasn't his representative. Right. He was managed by a guy named Mike Gormley, and his assistant was uh, Laura Engel, whose father was a huge uh, music attorney. Right. Laura was fabulous. She picked me up at the airport and brought me to meet Danny and, uh, and Steve. Strange cat. Yeah, but... But, um... but Karen Bartek, let me say, I just want to say this since I brought her up. She went on to be one of the great hair people in Hollywood. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, she was first or second lead on What's Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I said to her that was the first time that I saw hair that looked like it looked when we were growing up, because in movies, they always make it so nice, and it wasn't nice. You know, as much as you try to comb your hair, it wasn't always nice, but the wigs were, so anyway, but she's one of the, she's one of the greats. Steve uh, was one of the, the, the nicest people to yeah, work with. Yeah, fact. So... We got to book a studio, so I booked Capital C. I, um, uh, we got a good rate, and I had worked there before, so I knew what the room sounded like. So I got to meet Danny, and Danny says, well, you should come out and see a show. I had never seen them. Mm -hmm. So we go to Cal Poly in Pomona. Mm -hmm. It's packed. And I hadn't seen the whole L.A. punk scene, mosh pit, the whole deal. And I saw Danny fully immersed with the band. Right. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. And I had worked with eclectic bands in New York with Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Mm. And, Remember them? Uh, with August Darnell. And they were extravaganza on stage, but it was like Cab Calloway with, you know, went tropical with James Brown in the middle of it. And then Danny, there was this whole other thing. And I saw this this rainbow of musicians on stage. Right. You know, Latin, white, all, all right. mixed. And Danny got an egg thrown at him on stage. Hit him in the face. Hit him in the face? Yeah. And after the show, I was on the side of the stage the whole time. And Cal Poly Pomona was in, it was outdoor concert. Yeah. It was crazy. So he says, excuse me. Well, the guy who, who hit him with the egg came backstage after the show and then gave Danny an egg so he could smash him in the face with... <laughs> it was pretty funny. So I got to work with these guys, and right. extremely creative, just so inventive. Right. And he had already done Pee Wee Herman's Greatest Adventure. Right. And he was scoring Spielberg's Amazing Story. Okay. I think the episode was called Mummy Dearest. Right. It's a story about this mummy. They're on a set shooting a film. Right. With this mummy. And the mummy's got to come out of the lagoon and all that stuff, and it takes hours for this costume to be put on. And the mummy's wife is in labor, and he's got to run. And all of a sudden, he, he leaves. They don't know he's left, but there's another mummy. So Danny scores this. Right. He 
he's scoring this, this episode. Now, Danny was literally, if you understand the world of movie score, at that time it was the Jerry Goldsmiths, the Bill Contis, yeah. you know, the Elmer Bernsteins, all these people following this, the, the Newman tradition. And yeah, I heard Jerry Goldsmith speak once at a AA meeting, the main speaker, 60 Minutes. It was a fascinating story. Really? He was unbelievable. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll yeah. bet. He came in the Capitol once. I, I, I didn't get to meet him. I met John Williams. I didn't meet mm. Jerry Goldsmith. And Elmer Bernstein, I got to meet Bill Conti and people like that because we had a huge, uh, we're doing a lot of score. So Danny is literally, no pun intended, the redheaded stepchild. Right. Because they don't want to let him in. Right. It was like Henry Mancini letting Quincy in back right. in the day. And uh, Universal used to have a scoring stage. Right. And we did it with like a 75-piece orchestra. Wow. Steve Bartek did the orchestration. Yeah, he does, he's an orchestra conductor. Yeah. yeah, he did the orchestration, but he didn't conduct, and they oh. had to get a conductor. He couldn't get a conductor. It was so crazy, they wouldn't let him in. But literally, Danny was so frustrated because they weren't letting him in. Right. And here he is, what, 100 films later? Jesus Christ, yeah. You know, just, yeah. just killing it. And in fact, I was, used to go to Danny's house in Topanga Canyon at the time. And he had the software back in, uh, I guess it would have been the 80s, that he could, he could uh, go from, uh, he can transcribe uh, keyboard to, to notation. It was like in the 80s, it was like sort of so advanced. But, you know, he just kept going on and on. And a woman at MCA, uh, who was running the film division there, who was uh, Kathy Nelson, Right. Who was Ozzy's niece. Oh, okay. Ozzy and Harriet's niece. And she supported Danny and his, you know, career as a, a film score composer. And the rest is uh, you know, history, as we say. Right. So we mixed Dead Man's Party. I had fun with that mix because everything was legal. There was no, no restrictions with Danny. Right. And I was into using all these delays and these effects and this is a dead man's party, 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 you know. Right. Who could ask for more, more, more? And they would just let me go with it, let me run with it. I wound up mixing two records. I did um, Dead Man's Party and I did Boingo, mm -hmm. the one that followed with Just Another Day. It was great. I regret that I wasn't able to continue with him for some reason or other. I can't remember what happened, but... It was so inspirational to work with both of them. Right. I'm still friendly with Steve. I don't, yeah. I haven't talked to Danny in years, but I'm still friendly with Steve. How different is the process with scores versus just traditional music? Very different because the first score that I actually worked on here was a breakfast club. I got to work with John Hughes. Pretty monumental piece Keith, of work. Well, the conduit was Keith Forsey, who I'd worked with on Billy Idol, and he was uh, composing the score for Breakfast Club with Gary Chang, fabulous composer. Starring my off-Broadway wife, Allie Sheedy. Oh, yeah. Allie used to come down. She yeah. used to come down. Michelle Manning used to bring her down. What's involved in that is I had to learn how to work with picture. I was fascinated by it because one of the reasons I wanted to come to Hollywood was to work on songs for film. I've been a film nut all my life, and, and you know, Every director uses uh, music in a different way. Um, if you take a film like Goodfellows, it's all time-stamped with, with songs. 
Well, he's the master, I think, Scorsese, and how he uses music as a component of storytelling. Oh, and just in the scene alone with the helicopters. <laughs> the yeah. Nielsen song, right? Nielsen. Yeah, who's an underrated artist, I think. Nielsen, Muddy Waters. Yeah. Monkey Man. Right, right. All that going on at the same time, cutting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's genius. It's genius the way he does it. And then Chaz Palminteri did it too with the Bronx Tale. Mm. You know, he started doing that timestamp. Not so much score, but more needle drop, you know. But score is different because score, um, I was very fortunate during Breakfast Club. Keith was not necessarily so interested in going to the dub stage. And at that point, we weren't in digital. We were digital tape, but we weren't in digital workstations. So it wasn't file transfer. It was all in, in uh, you know, uh, digital tape. And we also had uh, a film editor, excuse me, a music editor on the premises working with a movieola. And we had a mag machine. So what mag is magnetic film, and then we would transfer our composition for that cue, whatever we would record it, we would lock that to a mag machine. I would take the mag, which is film, it's basically magnetic film with sprocket holes, and I would take that to the dub stage, to the Alfred Hitchcock dubbing stage over at Universal. And then I would give it to one of the engineers there. They put it on the dubber. The, the music editor had marked it, Ted Whitfield at the time, had marked the, uh, and Carl Culler, who worked as his assistant, would mark it with a grease pencil. And that was the start point. So we would go to the dub stage. The dub stage would lock the magnetic film, the mag, the audio, with the dialogue and with the film. They'd line all up, push one button, and it all starts. And here I am on first time on a dub stage watching this huge, I'm in a theater with these big speakers, and it's just me, the technical people, and uh, John Hughes, and Dee Dee Allen. Mm. And the film editor, right? Oh, my God. I loved her. Yeah. I loved her. So I didn't know what I was doing, but, you know, I figured what, what, what Keith said, go, find out what they want, and we'll figure out what to do. And I said, okay. So I went and took my notepad and sat down and listened to, you know, Dee Dee and John Hughes go at it. And because um, he wanted a two-and-a-half-hour film, figuring that the score was going to accelerate the pace of the film to the audience and still he can keep his director's cut but it wouldn't feel so long and he would uh they would go back one back and forth with each other to somehow or another try to negotiate that and i would just sit there and listen and then all of a sudden i hear frondelli and i go whoa hey somebody knows my name and she would say, music never gets in the way of dialogue. Have your orchestrator reorchestrate that cue. Because you got to think of it that if you're mixing a record, the dialogue is the voice. The whole idea with score is to evoke emotion from the audience. Either lift them, make them sad, make them you know, feel serene. Whatever that is, you have to somehow or another evoke that emotion what you're doing. And we were doing all electronic score. Uh, Gary Chang was brilliant. He was uh, uh, 
we had all these synthesizers linked together with drum machines. We had this one box that would link them all together. And there was this system called Fairlight. And Gary was writing code to sequence this whole thing as mm -hmm. we were doing it. He was writing MCL code, which is music computer language, and he was doing it on the fly. That's how brilliant he is. Now, the other side of score is full orchestra, where your picture, you have streamers that come on, they have a pop, what they call pops. They actually used to punch holes in the film, mm. and they would put white, green, and red streamers. Come, boom, you start your cue. So if the actor is opening up a doorknob, they're opening up a door, that would be the cue. Music starts, downbeat, boom, it has to extend for a period of time. And there's a whole equation that goes along with it where you go click the frame, depending on the frame rate that you're working in, to know how many bars it is from the beginning of the queue to the end of the queue, at what pace you want it. What I learned later was when I would go to sets later, I would be invited to sets where John Hughes was working, he would always have temp music playing because he'd want the actors to have a groove. Right. So you can pace the tempo of a scene and have that kind of feel to it. What happens, too, is that, especially if it's needle drop, they get attached to certain songs, and they have to have it, and it gets into a whole clearance issue and how much you can pay because you got to pay sync fees. and Right. Basically, that becomes the real estate business because you're paying right. for the uh, actual master if it's an original master and you're paying for the synchronization fee because you're putting it up to a moving picture and you got to have permission of the writer and the artist and all that kind of stuff so i did my homework on score in fact when i came to capital record budgets were tanking i i moved the business more into uh, f scoring for film and television 60 percent of it actually because wow. it was uh, pretty lucrative and we had an amazing uh, crew and we could accommodate it and we knew how to make it work for uh, scoring engineers and and composers make it really comfortable and have a mid-sized scoring stage and what was your title when you moved to capital i started out as a director in uh, december 1st 1990 and then uh it would be four years later i become vice president i worked there from december 1990 to october 2001 and what was your involvement with Sinatra and the duets? I got a call from Don Rubin, who was uh, the right hand of uh, Charles Koppelman, who had recently <laughs> become the CEO of North America for EMI. Right. And they had struck a deal with Elliot Wiseman, who was then Sinatra's manager, and Sinatra to record this album called Duets. He hadn't been in the studio in 10 years. He was 79 years old. And there's a whole backstory to this because this whole thing was inspired by a guy named Tony O. Tony O was the closest confidant to uh, uh, Mr. Sinatra uh, next to Jilly Rizzo, who had passed. And uh, Tony was a fabulous musician on his own. Uh, he was the guy who championed Frank to right. get into the process and throughout the process, and it wouldn't have happened without Tony. Right. But they made a, a nice deal for uh, Sinatra to do duets one and two, this whole idea of putting 
these artists together with Sinatra. They were Frank's biggest selling records. Right. You know, my involvement, I got a call from Don Rubin. Don Rubin said to me, he says, listen, you're going to get a call from Phil Ramone, who I had, who I had known. Uh, I hadn't worked with him, but I had known him from New York. Uh, he had A&R Studios in New York and huge fan of Phil's. You know, he made great records with um, Billy Joel, Paul Simon, an amazing engineer, too. He recorded 11 17, 70 for Elton John as a live show out of uh, A&R Studios right. for WNEW-FM. Don says, you know, give Phil what he needs. I said, okay, no problem. I get a call from Phil. Hey, man, what's going on? I said, well, I hear you're coming in. With, uh, yeah, I'm coming in with Mr. S. Because Phil had done L.A. as my lady. And uh, he recorded that with uh, Quincy. Right. I said, what do you need? I said, the studio's yours. What do you need? And he said, um, well, we're going to have both A and B. I said, yeah, that's, that's good. He said, we'll have the strings in B, and we'll put the big band in A, and we'll come in a couple of weeks ahead, and we'll rehearse it, and uh, we'll make sure that everybody's on when he is, because we're only going to get him once. And that's it. So we transformed the studio. Uh, Phil says he wanted a vocal booth where Frank could be in front of the band. So um, there are these movable walls that we use in recording called gobos. And... Um, to separate sounds. So we designed eight of them to interlock, and then we were gonna, we designed a roof that would intersect diagonally, and we would put an air conditioning attenuator on right. top so we can drop air into it, so we can make a movable booth, and one of the gobos was a door, a counterbalance door, so we could open the, he could open the door and walk in. So we were, as, we were talking earlier, we rehearsed the band, the big band, with all these triple scale players and, and the, uh, the string section with Patrick Williams, who's going to um, conduct. And it's going to be Frank's original book. So Terry Woodson, who's the guy who was the keeper of the Frank Sinatra archives, he's got uh, all the arrangements, all the charts. Right. From Billy May, Nelson Riddle. Quincy. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of arrangers, but whoever had written what arrangement for what song, we had that. And uh, Terry was the guy who kept the book, all the keys. And then Patrick Williams, you know, because Frank couldn't sing some of this in the original keys. They rearranged it. They, you know, transposed. They did everything they could do. So we got this big event coming on. We've right. got, it's all staged now. We've got two rooms. We've got pack musicians in there. They've been there for two weeks. They've been rehearsing. They know everything. Frank calls a song, boom, he's going to be able to sing it. The band will play it. They'll, they'll, they'll bring their A game, and it'll all be wonderful. So when you walk down the ramp into Capitol mm -hmm. Studios, you walk right into Studio A. And Studio A's got two big doors. It opens up. Well, that's where we put the booth with the eight mm. We set it all up, got it all going. Frank comes down. Tony O walks him in. This is all on an Entertainment Tonight video right. with Tina Sinatra talking. They got some film. Also, the making of duets. 
uh, George Slaughter had um, had done this documentary on doing it. We, we've got this all set up. It's set up like a lounge. We've got perfect lighting. They've been working for weeks with different microphones, testing them out, putting treatment on the glass that's in, the, in there so it doesn't reflect and everything sounds acoustically great and they've got isolation and they got a sound in the room that they can work with and there's a, a riser that Frank has to go one step into and there's a sofa and a lamp and his uh, cigarettes and his cough drops and his Jack Daniels and he's all set, right? Well, Tony brings in Frank into the studio. Frank says, where am I? You're in there. In there. All right, so he keeps an open mind. He goes in there and two minutes, says, get me the hell out of here. I want to be out there with them. Walks out. Walks right out. I go, oh, oh shit, what are we going to do now? Well, we had to rethink think this whole thing. So now capital B is here. A is here, there's a dividing wall that folds, and we make a decision that we're putting the conductor here, right. who was there anyway, right. but now we're building a stage platform, a riser for Frank, with then his teleprompter for the lyrics, and a handheld microphone, and Bill Miller, his accompanist piano, right in front of him. And there he is. He's in, the, in, with, in there with the band, facing the horn section. The drums are in a booth. The bass player's here. It's all set up. And uh, they come in, and he gets to get like eight or ten songs the first night. Unbelievable. But he yeah. felt more connected that way rather than separate in yeah, the booth. Yeah, he says, I don't want to be in there. Yeah. Right. He says, I want to be yeah. out there with them. It's a right. synergy, yeah. So you're in there during this whole process. Getting it all set up. And then we got the call and said, you know, just make sure they get what they need and, you know, leave. So you weren't in when they're recording? I was in some of the recordings. Okay. I saw him. Yeah, I'm just a huge fan. I'm just excited. Oh, well, I absolutely. Did, I, I History. Came, I came in for one for my baby. <laughs> one more for my baby. And one more for the road. And I sat there in tears um, because here's a man at 79 singing what he did maybe 40 years before right 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 that's a whole different interpretation sure absolutely sure you know? i think that's one of the great things about sinatra his interpretation is as he matured changed mm -hmm. the same material but like you say it was a whole different take yeah yeah not unlike tony bennett you know tony bennett was also a frequent client my mother grew up with tony in astoria he was such a nice man he came over ralph sharon but tony was the same way yeah Still, he was always kind of the same. Right. You know, he would do it with his small group. He never really did a lot of big band. Right. Know? He seemed like a friendlier guy, too. I mean, Frank, I guess, mercurial, he, his mood swings could. Yeah, we were told not to engage with Frank when he was in. Uh, I spoke to him a little bit, and, you know, and those blue eyes would take you right out. Is that where you met Tony? Yeah. How oh, I met Tony. So, capital A is here. And then there's Studio B. Right. And Studio B is a separate studio. It has its own control room and console and everything. And then there was a small booth. So we set up this, well, not a small booth, big enough to put a nine-foot grand piano in. And that was going to be his warm-up room, you know, sort of his green room. Right. We set it up. So 
from the studio as a gift. I'd buy, a, you know, one of those basket of goodies, you know, with all Italian kinds of things in it, you know, make them feel at home. And it was a basket, you know, with, you know, salamis and cheeses and crackers and breads and all that kind of good stuff and vino and, you know, real high-end stuff. And so I set Tony up with, with Frank in the room and he's working with Tony. He's, uh, excuse me, uh, Tony's working with Frank, sort of get him settled. Right. Frank was quite nervous. Like I said, it had been a whole different thing. He'd been, a lot of things had happened to him right. medically, stuff like that, you know. Tony's getting him comfortable and getting him in the mood. And then the next night he come back and we go in there and there was stuff was missing out of the basket. Apparently somebody stole Frank's salami. <laughs> so there was the big running joke, who stole Frank's salami? And that's how I got to meet Tony. We started right. talking about it. And, you know, realized that we had similar accents and similar history. A couple of Italian gingers. Well, I wasn't a ginger. My grandfather was a ginger. Oh, okay. He I thought the you same were color as Tony. I thought you were a ginger when I met you. No, no, no. That was probably a bad hair dye. But Tony was a jazz musician. Right. He used to play with Maynard Ferguson. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, he played guitar with Maynard Ferguson. But the thing with Tony was that uh, I had grown up playing in rock and roll bands, but I had studied jazz guitar playing with a, you know from an old Italian teacher in Astoria, Queens learning standards. So Tony and I related on that level that we both understood the standards. Right. I grew up in the kitchen. My mom had a radio going on from the time she got up to the time she went to bed. And she had WNEW AM on, which was all standards. It was William B. Williams with the Make Believe Ballroom. And, uh, you know, Peggy Lee, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra. That's all I heard all day long. You know, I want to play in a rock and roll band. Right. So I wound up growing my hair along playing rock and roll. Tony wore tuxedos and played venues. Right. We hit it off, and then I got to know his mom. Between Rose and Tony and the Marino family from Marino's, mm -hmm. Chiro and his wife and the kids, Sal and Mario, you know, I had, I had my little Italian fix whenever I needed it, you know, the Southern right. Italian fix. And Tony O was my ex-wife's 50th birthday present. Oh, really? Don't get your... Uh, Only in a restaurant. In that's there. right. Don't yeah. get your mind in the gutter. Yeah. My ex-wife is the biggest Sinatra fan, her and her, Sherry McCrone and her uh, best friend, Janet Fisher. And they both came down and Tony regaled them with stories of the Rat Pack and Frank and stuff. And it was wonderful. And I'll always thank him for that. Well, so now he's got a book out on Simon & Schuster. Yeah. Hmm. I got uh, the book. Sinatra. We all got the book. Sinatra and Me, and uh, it was written by Tony, and Tony was the guy, you know, he, Frank trusted him as a friend and treated him, you know, like family, and uh, Tony was dedicated to him, and the book is beautiful, I, I yeah, love it's the great, book he wrote, yeah, great stories, great stories, and the paperback's coming out now in June, okay, he had enough for two books, but uh, he got one. It's always time. Yeah. Yeah. We can wrap it up. We can always come back, whatever. Whatever you want. Yeah. What else did I? What else can I tell you? We didn't even get what? to the whole capital thing. I, th I think we should have Michael back for a yeah. second round at some point. No, you yeah. have too much. I mean, yeah. you have so much. 
Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and, and um, what's going you on You talk now? about your other connection, Steve Ferrone, your other Italian connection. Oh, yeah. Well, I never got to record Steve, but we did work with Light of the Blues. Uh, autism speaks. That's cool. Oh, we didn't get to talk about that. See, much. I mean, but so we, much. Yeah, you need you need round can, two on this. We can have a round two. Amazing! What a life! What a world! I'm in love. Yeah, what I have right now is CoolsvilleMusic.com. Right. It's a music licensing company. It's all from the architects of Cool, uh, a little boutique music licensing company focused on neo-swing, lounge music, exotica, surf, spy, crime, all that kind of stuff. We've got a small catalog, and uh, we're launching that. Uh, we're going to do it before the pandemic, and pandemic hit. Right. And I still mix records. I still mix at home. You have a website. You have... I mean, it's in the making now. Uh, it's in the works for the next couple of weeks. I'll have something It'll be michaelfrondelli.com. michaelfrondelli.com. Okay. We just want to get that out there. You know? Yeah, michaelfrondelli.com is where you'll find it. And you'll find all the links to Coolsville and everything else, too. All right. Yeah, Michael. It. Thank you. I love you.